Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Dr. Jeff Ridiger. He is the author of the book Cured, The Power of Our Immune System and the Mind-Body Connection. Well, uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you. So, I mean, I have to say, you know, I I loved the book, absolutely full of very, you know, inspiring uh, stories uh, about people um, having radical transformations in their health and completely, you know, curing themselves of diseases that we um, perceive to be incurable. And you're not like an alternative healthcare. (laughs) You're a trained (laughs) doctor. so, you know, that in itself is, is fascinating that you've, you've taken the, a leap outside of the, the, the I guess, the, the, the general framing of your profession, and you've been prepared to, to take a look at some of these, these stories and dig deeper. Um, so, it's, you know, I, I, really, I really appreciated uh, reading the book. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if we should, I don't know, start with, with where, you know, where you first started noticing people curing themselves in seemingly miraculous ways. Yeah. I mean, there's a story to that. And I, I, I think the deeper story probably goes back to my childhood because I come from such a rural background. My father was Amish. Um, and then, but I was going to public school during the day and living in a very different culture at home than I was in at school. And so I think that started me at a very young age, starting to figure out what's true, what's true about the different worldviews that people inhabit. So I ended up going to seminary at Princeton, um, going deep into philosophy of science and theology, and then from there went to medical school. And then that was another situation of two worlds, two very different worldviews and different ways of conceptualizing reality and what's possible. Then after finishing residency, I was a new young faculty member at Harvard and medical director at McLean. And an oncology nurse at Mass General Hospital in Boston came to me and said that she had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and wanted some help explaining this to her son. So I did that. But then she took off to a healing center and started writing and calling me saying that she was starting to get better. She was feeling better. She was able to eat steak and salad and do things that she had not been able to do. And she um, wanted me to look into it. And she also said that she saw other people getting better from their illnesses unexpectedly. And so she was calling me and writing me and saying, I think you should look into this. Um, I said, no, I didn't think anything likely was occurring that couldn't be explained by being a good responder to chemotherapy or something. But she began having people call and write and send in their medical files from around the country and the world. And and all the most of them, I could explain from within the standpoint of traditional science and medicine. Some of them I couldn't. And so the long and short of it is I did begin to collect medical evidence and very rigorously pursue um, how these people were getting better. And that was that was. 2003 that this all started. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing this now for, for close to 20 years and it's been a life-changing journey, both personally and professionally. Right. Right. And, and why do you, you know, what was the tipping point when you thought, okay, I just can't ignore these stories anymore. Like, can you remember, was there like a moment where you're like, all right, I'm going to look at this. 
Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember one of my first interviews and I tell this story in, in Cured, uh, Jan Shaw, she was this amazing lady and she was, so I was talking to her and I, I was looking at her medical evidence. And then I looked at some of the photos of who she was years ago, uh, prior to when I was speaking with her and I, I would not have recognized her. And she said that when she went home to Idaho, she would walk down a street where she had lived for many years and people wouldn't recognize her anymore because she had changed and healed at such a deep level that people just didn't recognize her anymore. She'd lost a lot of weight. She'd come off of 20 medications. She was happy instead of sick all the time. And so that was one of the first stories. That was my first really deep interview and examination of medical evidence to make sure she had been diagnosed correctly and, and all this. And 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 looking at all of this and the medical data, I was just shocked and and seeing how happy she was, how vital she was, how um, you know she just wasn't this depressed, ill individual anymore. And so that's when I first realized, wow, there's something here I need to understand. And it took me years to fully get it that as a physician, I had been trained to make a diagnosis and start a medication, but I had not been taught how to heal people. And that's not something that we even, for the most part, research. And I was shocked to finally begin to understand that. And there's a lot of reasons why that is the case for medicine. Uh, but, and that is starting to change. We are at the end of the era of naming diseases and starting medications. And at the beginning of a whole new era where we actually do study how people heal. And that's very exciting, but we have a lot of work to do yet. That's, that's, that's a really positive outlook. And uh, that's very refreshing. So you feel like we're at the end of that because we might yes. look around right now in the response to, to COVID. And it, it feels like sort of peak medicalization of society. But that's interesting. You've got a different message. Yeah, I think, I think we are at the beginning of a new era and signs of change are occurring. I spoke at a uh, conference a few years ago, University of Texas at Austin, and it was a conference for do-it-yourselfers, basically people who are not going to wait for science or doctors to figure out solutions to their illnesses. And it was a bunch of do-it-yourself people who are figuring out these brilliant solutions. And that is growing. And People are starting to take charge of their health. People are starting to change their nutrition on their own. They're starting to examine and heal their stress response. More and more, what we're seeing is a slow democratization of medicine where people are becoming the CEOs of their own health, taking charge of their own well-being. And that is going to continue growing, I believe, and ultimately transform medicine. And that will be associated with this new era where we actually study how people heal and people are going to continue demanding more of that. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, that, that's, that's great to hear, you know, from somebody where, 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 you know, in the position that you're in. Um, well, and you know, and also there's, there's a lot to this because in the same way, for example, that Martin Luther, uh, could not have been the spark that caused the reformation hundreds of years ago, if it had not been associated with also the printing press and the folio that came out that people could start reading the scriptures for themselves. For example, the Reformation wouldn't have happened without that technology in the same way that um, Roosevelt, the New Deal, that kind of stuff wouldn't have happened if the radio hadn't come out at the same time. Mm -hmm. And 
Kennedy with the with the television, and he had such an impact with a whole new way of uh, being in the world because the, he knew how to work with the television. It's the same thing now. Now we have quantum physics, which has been around for 80 years, is now entering medicine through Silicon Valley and turning us digital. And so now we have apps for meditation on our phone. Um, and we have apps for helping us improve our nutrition on the phone. We have sensors that we can put on our bodies or in the environment that's helping us take charge of our health. And that is just at the beginning of a whole new technological revolution that's slowly going to rework our understanding of mind and body and, and, and relocate the responsibility and the opportunity for health and well-being in us instead of having an expert doctor who is the expert over your life and body, but doesn't know you really or much about your body at all. And you see them 15 minutes for, you know, every number of months. And, and that's so people would more and more become the experts of their life and health and well-being. And technology is going to help that happen in a way that we are just beginning to see. So less uh, trust the experts and more you are the expert. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, tell, I tell patients all the time, don't let a doctor be the expert over your life and your body. They only see you minutes at a time. And there's so much about your life and body they don't know. And they can do really well as a coach. Scientific training is important. Uh, clinical experience is important. But there are things about your life and your body that need to be put into the mix so that they really understand and you really understand what's going on here. What is the story of your life and how that interacts with this illness? And you end up in a really different place and understanding of what you need to get better. Mm. Yeah. Great. I mean, that's, uh, that, that really aligns with my view on, mm. on how, well, what I think is possible for humans what I think yes. is possible for individuals is to take charge of their own health and it is to seek out coaching and guidance where they need it, but to center, to orient towards their own wisdom and intuition about what's going to be um, beneficial for their well-being and health. And, yeah, yeah that, absolutely. Uh, and, and to realize that the illness is a message. You're sending a message from your body saying there's something that's out of whack and address this. And so whether it's, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or depression or anxiety, which is so prevalent during the pandemic or a weak immune system, there's a message there that can be addressed. It, when I was in medical school, we were taught that genes are the basis of disease. And we thought that, well, if we can just map the genome and do and figure out how to manipulate these genes, we'll eliminate disease. Well, it didn't turn out to be that simple. And most of the time, we now know that 85 to 90% of the illnesses from which people suffer are lifestyle illnesses. And yes, they have a genetic basis, but we know on the basis of epigenetics that genes get turned on and off by lifestyle, by nutrition, by the amount of rest that you get, by how you relate to stress, by your deep conscious and unconscious beliefs about yourself and your value in the world. And so, these are changeable things. And that's true for all of the major killers, even heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune illness. Um, these are, we have a lot more opportunity to change that trajectory of the illness than we realize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was a, there was a ton in there, you know, I look forward to getting into it. I wonder if we, if we ground this in the story of Jan, because that, that's where it still all started. Like, 
Mm. What was her diagnosis? What was the prognosis from the medical establishment? And then, you know, what was the difference? Yeah. So she was diagnosed. She had a lot of medical problems through her teen years. Um, and there's, and she had back surgeries and a number of problems with her immune system took years to finally get a proper diagnosis. But one of the major illnesses she had was lupus, systemic erythematosus. Um, and, and by the time she went to this healing center, she was end-stage lupus. It was, it, it was in her brain. It was in her liver. It was in her kidneys. Um, it was in her heart. And she was down to the point of having just weeks to live. Lupus can be a very variable illness. Some people will have a mild form and they just are fatigued and have difficulty functioning. For other people, it can be a more severe form where it's life-threatening and life-ending. And she, after having lupus for over 20 years, she was in end-stage lupus and, and was going into organ failure. And so her doctor told her she actually couldn't go to this healing center. She was too sick to travel. Finally, what she did was she paid a doctor to go with her and she did do that. And then it's a long story about how she began to get better. She began to change her nutrition. Um, she had a heavy burden of guilt around her adopted children who were struggling with drugs. And she walked up to this healer um, one morning and he said, uh, those are not yours. And she said, what do you mean? And she had a bag of her medications. She was on 20 medications at the time. And she said, no, I have prescriptions for these. These are my medications. He said, I'm not talking about your medications. He said, your children, they are not yours. They are God's. They are on their own path. And you can't give up your health trying to fix things that are not yours to fix. And after that, she went and cried for two days and just unburdened herself from this, this heavy effort to try to fix something that she had not been able to fix. And she felt so awful as a mother. And so that began a deep course of psychological and physiological healing for her as she changed her nutrition, as she changed her understanding of herself and her value and gave up burdens that were not hers to carry. She learned how to say no. She learned that she needed to have well-being in her life and needed to know where she could say no so that she could say yes to a deeper kind of relationship with herself. And, and so by the time I met her then, a few years after that experience began, she was no longer recognizable from her prior photos. She had just become this, this happy, vital woman who, when she laughed, her eyes would sparkle and she looked so much younger than her older photos. She had lost a lot of weight as part of the nutrition and part of, I think, not being depressed any longer. And, and that's, that's, that was the story that I decided, wow, I need to look into what's going on in these people's lives. And, and the lupus had, had gone. Lupus or was gone. She hit, was off of all medications. The only physical problem she still had at that point was the effects of years of prednisone on her bones. And prednisone steroids can be very hard on your bones if you're on it for years at a high dose like she had been, uh, suppressing the immune system. And she did have uh, some 
problems from that, but the lupus was gone. She has had, I've kept in touch with her over the, it's been 20 years I've known her. And so she lives in Northern Idaho now, still really happy and vital woman. She has some heart problems, which she uh, thinks is part of that's from actually um, the effects, the long-term effects of the lupus probably, but also she had a biopsy on her heart that went bad and weakened her heart as well. And so, so it's a, you know, she has some effects from the medical assistance yet through medications and treatments that really, really did a number on her. But in terms of the lupus, that completely turned around. And, and the expectation would have been from the medical that she would have, have died within a certain period. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was, she was going into organ failure. And so, right. so, and, you know, I, there's, I started off here talking about Claire with her pancreatic cancer. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. another really remarkable story. Talk about a, um, an amazing woman diagnosed with pancreatic adenocarcinoma by biopsy. We know she had the correct diagnosis. And, and then was told she would be dead within a year or so. And she began to change her life in similar ways that, that Jan did changed her nutrition. She expected to die. And actually the preparation to die turned out to be very liberating because she quit trying to please everyone else. She tried to live a more authentic life. She said, if I only have a matter of months to live, I'm going to, I'm going to celebrate life and I'm going to forgive the people that I have been angry about or with, and I'm going to finish well. And that began a journey of creating such well-being that I think the, uh, it's, it, my belief is that the physical nutrition, the emotional nutrition, the spiritual nutrition she was giving herself really created a different path, a more authentic path where she was much less a false self and more her real self. And, it, and then time began to go by and before you know it, we're in 2018 and she had been diagnosed by biopsy in 2008. So, so another person who would have been expected to be dead by now. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the thing I've seen, you know, I talk and cared about the four pillars of healing and well-being. So there's, <laughs> we could talk about those if you want. Yeah. 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 So in the first pillar is nutrition. And I think nutrition is a big topic in itself. Um, it's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about nutrition. Um, it took me years to begin understanding what these individuals I was studying were doing to change their nutrition, because as a physician, I'd been given so much misinformation about nutrition. And so I thought I ate healthy and I see patients every day in the hospital and most of them think they eat healthy and most of us don't. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about, about what genuine nutrition is. So I, and that's the trifecta of industry who pay academics to do the studies and get certain results. And then how that interacts with the lobbyists who then go to government and work to get certain government regulations around nutrition. That trifecta creates a lot of misunderstanding around genuine nutrition. And so we have, and that's a deep hold that we could talk more about, but I think what people need today is to know what can, what can we all do to improve our nutrition? So what I have seen, fad, di fad diets don't work, um, um, but what um, underneath all the differences in the approaches that people took, who I studied, there are very common elements. Most people 
eliminated or sharply reduced processed foods. They, for the most part, turned more to whole plant-based foods, uh, vegetables and fruits. And there's really healthy, great tasting ways to do this that, that I just simply did not know about um, when this whole journey started. Not everybody eliminated meat, but most did. 88% uh, eliminated meat and became vegetarians. And I think uh, they did that not so much because they were against meat sometimes, but more because they wanted to increase the nutritional density of what they were eating. They wanted to make sure they were eating the most nutritionally dense foods. And, and so that's a big topic in itself. But, um, but so most people sharply decreased animal products. I certainly have done that myself after years of watching these stories and listening to them and, uh, and, and realized how many chemicals and antibiotics and steroids and, and things are in a lot of the meat products and animal products that we have. And so that's, that's part of the thing with nutrition. So whole foods, plant-based, uh, finding really nutritional ways to do that that are great tasting and don't take a lot of time for preparation. That's been actually for me, a huge piece of education that took some time to invest in because I just thought I knew things I didn't know. And, and I did have a lot to learn about that. And so, and now I can go to many restaurants and I know what I can order that's healthy and genuinely uh, without a lot of chemicals usually and that sort of thing. And so I know how to do this in a way that my life is very simple now. And I can go out with friends and, and eat food that I love. And it's, it's not a big deal, but it really took some time to invest in figuring out that path. And I had to come to grips with the fact that I was addicted to sugar in a way I just had no idea about. Mm. Sugar is highly inflammatory. And if you want to have an anti-inflammatory diet, you're going to have to sharply cut down on the sugar and the refined flours. And and, you know, a hundred years ago, actually a little bit more than a hundred years ago, the average uh, Westerner consumed four pounds of sugar a year. No big deal. The average Westerner now, at least in the United States, consumes 155 pounds of sugar per year. It's in so many things. It's in the tomato sauce. It's in the salmon that you pick up from Whole Foods, a lot of the salmon. It's in so many different things that you just never would expect it. I read a, a court case recently. Ireland uh, no longer allows the subway chain to call to tax their bread as bread because the sugar content is so high that it doesn't qualify to be called bread anymore. Wow. And so these, these kinds of things are just, the more you look into it, the more you realize, wow, we really need a different path. And so sugar and refined flour are highly inflammatory. And the whole grain flours, the whole foods, the plant-based foods. It's a very different kind of physiology for your body that your, your body loves. And I think, you know, we all take better care of our cars many times than we do of our bodies. And you're not going to put... You say, you say that in the book, right? That you yourself reflected. You'd take yeah. Bet, bet yeah. I mean, I began to realize in, in medicine, what we do is we often actually teach patients to, if there's a red light that goes off on the dash of your car, we teach people, oh, just clip that wire and the light will go off instead of addressing the reason why the light comes on. And we also, uh, with our nutrition, we put junk in our bodies and, 
once your body gets what it needs, it just wakes up and the immune system begins to hum and the cells begin to function properly. And instead of, and most of the illness people suffer from are autoimmune disorders. Heart disease is autoimmune. It's the immune system, the brilliant cells of the immune system attacking your body because they're confused and they don't know how to distinguish the body from the pathogen. And so heart disease, diabetes, um, cancer, autoimmune illnesses, these are immune systems that have gone awry and are creating inflammation because it's the body attacking itself. And this is to a significant degree because people are giving their minds and their bodies things that chemicals that hurt the mind and body instead. Right. And so when you say that sugar creates inflammation, yeah, just, ex just explain that. Yeah. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, and one can explain this at different levels. One way to talk about this is, uh, is the sugar has, is kind of this sharp edged little cube when you look at it underneath a microscope. And so when you have a high content of sugar coursing through your arteries and your veins, they will be bouncing off those arteries, causing little nicks, little cuts. And what your body does, your immune system sends these brilliant cells to the site of these cuts to repair. Well, what you do is you start creating scab on top of scab on top of scab when you are constantly flooding your body with sugar. And that then is what creates atherosclerosis. And so it's the hardening of the arteries from this scar upon scar upon scar, this effort of the body to repair these, uh, these little cuts. That's, that's one way in which you can talk about the inflammatory effect of sugar on your body. Right. Right. And I'd, not, I'd never heard it described in that way, but I think we need this. Like, it, yeah. I think, cause that's the kind of story that most people couldn't understand. Mm -hmm. I've never, you know, why haven't I ever been, why have I never been exposed to that story right. in, in my life? I mean, right. I mean, yeah. I know the importance of wearing a seatbelt in a car. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is, well, a, this, is yeah. A, this is a simple, you know, you could, this is an analogous in terms of a, right. of a health risk in my life. Well, I, mean, and I, I know that sugar yeah. is bad for me, but I don't, right. I'm not explained why and the basic mechanics. Well, and I think one reason for that is as physicians, we specialize in body parts. And so if you're, if you're a doc and you're interested in the brain, then you'll become either a neurologist or a psychiatrist. If you're interested in the gut, you become a gastroenterologist. If you're interested in the heart, you become a cardiologist, et cetera. And so we for, have spent decades studying body parts. And for example, we thought that, that atherosclerosis was related to cholesterol. Well, now we know it's not really the cholesterol that's a problem. We need cholesterol at a certain level the underlying issue is the inflammation and the inflammation is a systemic thing. It's not a body part thing. And so once you start to realize, oh, the heart is having problems because it's got chronic inflammation and it's just a matter of time until your pancreas starts to have problems, for example, and then you have diabetes. I mean, it's the chronic inflammation in the body. That's not a body part problem. That's a systemic problem. And you start to see the illnesses in the body parts completely differently once you realize it's a chronic inflammation problem. So we have been focusing on the trees for decades. We need a lot of help to stand back and look at the bigger picture and to see the person and to see the system that the body operates in. That's really different than just looking at a body part. Right. Right. And that makes, um, you know, com 
complete sense. And I just think about, you know, somebody very close to me has a cancer diagnosis, you know, they're, they're in the sort of the late stage of it. And when we talk about um, the advice he's getting from his doctor, yeah, it's, it's, this is the medication you need to, to take. And this is when I need to see you at hospital. It's all about, you know, what is the treatment? Yes. And maybe oh, yeah. there's a, you know, and maybe, oh, and perhaps it would be useful to take some of these vitamins, but that's a, you know, it's, it's really about what's the treatment and, and how much, yes. you know, what's the dosage and how often. There's, there's, there's nothing of, of, from the zoom out perspective. And, th- and that would be okay if it weren't for the fact that he takes exclusively his guidance from the doctor. Right. Exactly. Right? And that's exactly. the only authority figure that, yeah. that he'll respect. Right. So it, if it doesn't right. come from the doctor, he's not going to do it. And if the doctor's not right. saying do these things, he's not. So it's, it's, it's really different. You know, you, I, I mean, I'm seeing it play out in my own life, the, the sort of limitations oh, yeah. of the model. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We just need a really different paradigm and realize, oh, the doctor's not going to be the solution there if they're only going to make a diagnosis and start a medication because the medication will treat symptoms, but it's not going to treat the causes. It's not going to reverse the chronic inflammation that's causing the cancer. It's not going to do that. And so figuring out what you need, what I need, what each of us needs to create an anti-inflammatory lifestyle with physical and emotional nutrition is a whole different path. And that's doable, but we, we just are in the early stages of beginning to bring about this new worldview. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in the book, which I think was another interesting point for me, Descartes and the, the, the initial mind, yeah, body sp- split and, and that philosophical shift. I wonder if you could, could and, and I hadn't had the context for that before. I wonder if you could talk about Descartes and, you know, the, the history of oh, yeah. where we've got to. Yeah. Yeah, very much. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, Descartes did so much brilliant work in many ways and the enlightenment that was associated with the work of Descartes and Kant uh, that gave us a whole new intellectual basis and platform for rational thought was amazing, but it was a conflict from the very early stages with the church because to start to begin thinking rationally and empirically and scientifically, that was a threat to the church. And the church had a very well-developed cosmology and a body of theology that, for example, believed that the earth was at the center of the universe. And, you know, we all know the Galileo story and, and Copernicus and the evidence, the scientific evidence as that began to develop and how threatening that was to the church. And so they would put people in house arrest or kill them. And, and so it was a very, so when Descartes did his work, he basically said, okay, let's give matters of the mind and the spirit. Let's give that to the church and they can have that domain. And, but let us do our things. Let us, let us um, begin to investigate with our rational minds, the, the physical world. And so that, that solved the immediate problem by giving the church, the mind and giving the body to the, the early scientists and doctors. But it left us with this dualism where we don't study how healing occurs in part because we don't know how to cross the chasm between mind and body. And so we're taught that that chasm is very final and absolute, but yet anyone who's worked with helping people heal for many years knows that you don't get better if, unless you engage all kinds of things 
having to do with how you feel about your life and how you feel about yourself and your world. And, and those, those higher aspects of mind and spirit gives you the motivation to make nutritional changes, for example. And so you, these things have to be engaged, but we've kept them apart for centuries and that's just beginning to change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when I re- reflect on that story and about, about Descartes is something I hadn't appreciated is that in the era he was operating, mm-hmm. everything was, as you describe in the book, well, you're sick because you're, you sinned or you're sick because this is a punishment from God or this whole village is right. sick because it's been, you know, cursed right by the right. devil or whatever it might be. And you can understand that actually by allowing for a mind body split, Mm-hmm. actually opened possibility because now we can yeah. we can study the body in isolation without concerns for its you know place in the cosmic realm and and so we could do science in a different way and so it actually expanded possibilities but the the what we're left with as a legacy of that is actually yeah. now is, is narrowing for our exploration that's absolutely true that's right that's why now we are it's such a, a great thing that these two worlds mind and body are coming together and stair steps are being built in the research on both ends to towards each other because they are so important and yes you're absolutely right it was really important that the early scientists took um illness from the church and said, no, you cannot say that this person is ill as a judgment from God or because of their sin or because of what's wrong about them. And that was, a, that was the beginning of a step in a positive direction. But now we need to take the next step and, and, and see that, that how a person feels about themselves and how they value their lives and the respect they have for their body and what they put into their body and their mind in terms of thoughts are critical for where your physical illness goes in your life. Yeah. And, and I like the way, because when I, I first sort of visualized that swing, I, I, I visualized it more as a pendulum. You know, yeah. we, we started at the metaphysical and it was all, you know, this was, this, we've got metaphysical rationale for all of our, you know, bodily ailments. Now it's all just, it's materialistic. But really we could think of it as like a spiral. I like that in the book, right? That we, we, we're, just, we're just circling around different yes. perspectives, but with each loop we're getting, we're you know, ascending in our understanding. I, I can't that, that. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I I think it is a spiral upward where we engage these big questions, these big dualities over and over in new and higher ways over the centuries in ways that are becoming more refined and more sophisticated and truer. Right, right. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I like to. I wonder if we could talk about now, uh, given we're on this topic, your own experience of Dr. Nima and your own so you've had an experience, right? Oh, yeah, I have. Personally with your back. Yeah, yeah, I really did. Uh, Dr. Namey is a... Namey, sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, Dr. Namey is this wonderful physician in Cleveland, Ohio. And he and I met on the Dr. Oz show years ago. And, and then I became interested. He's an engineer by training who's also a physician who now works mostly as a healer and has had amazing uh, um, amount of work that he's done with patients. And so I was studying over the years, uh, studying patients who had medical evidence for recovery from incurable illnesses. And uh, some of them were his patients. And one of the things I liked about studying with his patients was he was a physician and he understood the importance of having an accurate diagnosis and collecting good medical data. Uh, And that's really helpful to the kind of research I do because my criteria 
where there had to be clear evidence that this was a genuinely incurable illness. And there had to be, that was one criteria. The second criteria was there had to be clear and accurate diagnosis and, and then clear evidence for recovery. And so it was just easier to, to do uh, some of this work with him because he was a physician and understood the importance of this. So sitting in his office and talking to his patients, looking at medical files, um, and then he, he said, you know, you're back, you have some back pain, don't you? And I had never mentioned it to him, but yeah, I'd, I'd had a back problem for many years. My back was even misshapen um, in terms of uh, my spine. And I, I don't know exactly how that happened, but my guess is since I was raised on a farm, I was working with very heavy hay bales and buckets of water from a very young age. And I'm, my guess is I was probably too young for some of that. So I didn't always have back pain, but there'd be uh, times where I have, would have really severe back pain when I was stressed, especially. And he said, let me take a look at this. And so he just put me on this uh, table and he just did something very quiet. I, I suppose it was probably a kind of a prayer for like a matter of seconds. And he touched my back and I felt it become soft for a minute, which was a bizarre experience. And he pushed something into place in my spine and he was done. It was just a matter of seconds, just over before you knew it. And I've never had a back problem since. And I was like, are you kidding me? So, and my back is a different shape than it was. So I don't know how to explain that. And there's, I, I do is best I know how to do to map these, these uh, healings that I can, but there's also some of these things that happen are just a mystery beyond my scientific understanding as a physician. All I can do is tell you my back, I've never had a back problem or pain since. And I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> it's improved my quality of life. Um, but you know, that, that, that story there, that's not about nutrition. That's not about, um, anything other than, or even a sort of conscious emotional process. It wasn't like yeah. you, you grieved the emotional pain of being asked to lift your pain <laughs> out, right? It's not like you had some sort of therapeutic experience. It's right. something even beyond that, right? Yeah. 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 And I think there's one way, ways that one could understand that at a deeper level, but that's in some ways more speculative too. I, I don't have a full answer for the mystery of what happened there. And does he explain what he does? Yeah, he does. I mean, you know, he's, this, he's, a, he's an interesting guy because he is an engineer by training and a physician and uh, born in the Middle East and deeply spiritual. And so he is this paradoxical sort of scientist inventor, healer, physician type of person. So he says that, yeah, it doesn't matter whether you fire a laser or love through the quantum field, it still is going to have an impact. And so, so that's, that's a very brief way of saying that he does view the world differently as a scientist and also as someone who's deeply spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm being drawn into the same speculation, but it's something, you know, right? Something like he's it's some kind of transfer of of, of loving energy or 
yeah, I mean, you, you lose the, the vocabulary quite quickly. Right? Yeah. And that's a deep topic because, you know, we were talking about Descartes a few minutes ago. And so Descartes and Newton, Isaac Newton, who gave us the basis for understanding the laws of the physical world. I mean, that's, that's really was a massive step forward for us scientifically and in terms of developing rational thought. But it's a way of thinking that, again, separated mind from body and also separated subject from object. And so we have spent centuries thinking that what's going on inside of us has no connection with what's going on in the world that you can see and touch. Quantum physics has been around for 80 years now and completely turns that upside down and says, actually, what you think has a massive, actually, a massive impact on what's going on in the physical world. The chair that you and I are sitting on, the desk that our computers are sitting on, we know on the basis of not quantum theory, but on the basis of quantum indisputable fact that the physical world that we see and touch does not exist in the way we think it does. It looks and feels solid, but we now know that that table that the computer is on, the chair we're sitting on is mostly empty space and that a few really tiny particles spread at massive distance from each other look and feel solid or give the appearance of that because they're vibrating in a constant resonance of energy with each other. And that's, that's not theory. That's, that's indisputable fact. And, and there, we know that there are ways in which the uh, physical objects can be manipulated based upon things that are very mental. And we don't understand that yet. We, it's too big of an idea. We're 80 years into quantum physics and just starting to step into that new world with the digital um, in, implications that are coming now into our world and are going to continue to remodel our understanding of mind and body at both conscious and unconscious levels and are preparing us to begin coming to grips with this fact that the physical world doesn't exist the way we think it is. It's like this mass dream that we're in and that there's a deeper mental thing going on here. That's the real story. And it's so mind boggling. We don't know how to come to grips with that yet. And yeah. that's, that's where someone like Dr. Namey is um, thinking a lot about that kind of stuff. And, and so we're at the beginning of a massive cultural transformation that's going to take a long time to occur, but it's going to be around these kinds of issues that is, it, it just defies common sense. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, that's right. And, and I guess insights around this have existed in the spiritual traditions for, for a long time. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And, and especially the East, the East has mm. been studying the mind for thousands of years. We've been studying the mind in the West for about 120 years, starting with mm. Freud. And, but they've been studying the powers and the possibilities of the mind for thousands of years. And they tell a really different story about what's possible in terms of the mind's interaction with the body. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 like we want to integrate everything that's great that the enlightenment has given us, the Western traditions have given us, yeah, and 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 expand uh, into this deeper study of the mind and and who we are. Yeah, we need the East and the West, and we'll we'll kill ourselves off if we don't continue to allow that cultivation across cultures 
to occur because there are insights into the mind that the East does have that we need more of. And the East needs our Western focus on immediacy and evidence and science and democracy that we need these different worlds to come together to continue cultivating a new way of understanding possibility for sure. Yeah. And, and how do we, so we may not have all the answers, but how do we, and, and of course, as you say, we, there's lots we can learn from some of the Eastern traditions, especially, but it, you mentioned in the book, um, this one experiment on prayer and some of the challenges with that, but like, you know, how do we move forward in studying these phenomena, you know, I suppose in the Western tradition? Yeah, that's a good question. If you look at the studies on prayer, as I discussed in Cured, about half of the studies find no significant effect of prayer, and about half of the studies do find some effect. Uh, the studies are very complicated in terms of their methodology and how they're set up and whether they're valid studies of prayer. The largest study on prayer that was done, and the most, it was also the most rigorously um, uh, established in terms of its methodology, was done here in part at Harvard, and was uh, some real attention given to it. But um, they, they reported in their conclusions that prayer didn't help. And, and so what does that mean? So in, in, in reading that study, though, I had some questions. And my belief or suspicion, and I, I could be wrong here, because the study of prayer scientifically is fraught with all kinds of methodological problems. But they simply had people say the person's name and pray for them briefly with a scripted um, typewritten phrase about having an, a positive impact on their heart disease. And uh, one group actually had worse results as a result of having been prayed for. And so that's a concern. So, but they didn't, they didn't look at the deeper possibilities of what prayer might be from my standpoint. We know on the basis of hard evidence that college students who meditate and have their brains examined by a functional MRI or PET scan, for example, have really different um, brains while meditating than advanced meditators. So an advanced meditator on functional MRI has a very different um, brain image imagery. Like parts so, of the brain can shrink, right? Took, yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, so that means that it's not just about the prayer, it's about the quality of the prayer. And, and if maybe prayer is an energy, maybe it's not just saying a phrase, maybe it's about the qualities that the person has developed in their own heart and life. And that was not studied in the, in the, uh, prayer study at all. And so and I, I think that we have to learn how to investigate scientifically qualities of prayer. We know that there's qualities of meditation and advanced meditators, their brains are different. So it's probably the same way with prayer is my guess. And that, that kind of work has not been done. So we have to learn how to scientifically investigate levels of quality, and that might be a more fruitful and more valid uh, set of results with the prayer studies. Right. Right. And then I guess that extends also to quality of emotional work, because there are mm -hmm. several examples in the book where people mm -hmm. go through an act of forgiveness. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that and gets into qualities as well. And the, the 
those qualities that we cultivate in our lives that we now are starting to understand creates a really different neurochemistry in the body. If you are living your life, for example, with stress hormones being secreted on the brilliant cells of your immune system, um, cortisol, norepinephrine, adrenaline, if that's what you are bathing your immune system in, you're creating inflammation in those immune cells and in your body. But if we are cultivating a more parasympathetic way of being in the world where we are um, flooding ourselves with oxytocin, the love molecule, or dopamine, the pleasure pathway, or serotonin, the antidepressant molecule, when you, we know on the basis of clinical and laboratory evidence that when the cells of the body and the immune system are bathed in that kind of neurochemistry, they wake up, they function properly. Inflammation begins to subside and heal. And that's a quality that can be cultivated in certain kinds of meditation or prayer. And in the early steps of research that we are on, we're starting to see this is a really big deal. Right. And that's, you know, that's profound in itself that uh, the quality of our thoughts can impact, can that damage, can have an impact on our body. So, so a, a bitter yeah. thought that we're holding onto about an individual right. can literally damage our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you a story about that. Uh, just a real yeah. simple story. I know we don't have much time here, um, but there's a friend of mine who was really struggling. She had been through a lot of abuse as a child and had, uh, by the time she was in her 40s, was suffering from heart disease, high blood pressure. Her blood sugar was too high and they were thinking she was either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, she had high cholesterol, was on medications for anxiety and depression, and she'd been through the suicide of a son. And, uh, and it was so depressed and anxious and her body was failing her. And she was an artist. And so she was in Italy on, a tr on vacation and she was standing in front of the statue of David, which was uh, a sculpture, a famous sculpture by Michelangelo. And she was offended that somebody at some point in the remote past had defaced that statue in some way. Um, and she, as an artist, she was just offended that somebody would, would deface an object of such beauty. But then it struck her like a revelation that she had been defacing her own mind and body for years with poor nutrition and with um, toxic thoughts really about not being good enough or there's something bad or wrong or defective about her. And she resolved as a result of that experience that she needed to eliminate the toxic foods and toxic thoughts that she'd been putting into her mind and body. And you can look at her website, uh, emilybowler.com, Emily, B-O-L-L-E-R.com, and the book she's written. It's, it's an amazing journey and just shows, again, um, this, this occurred in 2008. Uh, she started documenting her journey in July 2008. Uh, by July of 2009, she had lost 100 pounds. She was off of all medical and psychiatric medications. She no longer had elevated blood sugar no longer had high blood pressure, no longer had high cholesterol. She no longer needed medicines for anxiety or depression. The inflammation in her body had subsided. And so her mind and body were just a completely different thing. And this is another story where someone can walk down the street and won't even be recognized because they're so different and happy. And you can see this on our website, just what a great story it is. But you start seeing 
story after story after story like this, you realize, wow, there's patterns here. We should be studying these patterns. Yeah. 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 And I guess, I mean, I know we don't have log and this is a big question in itself, but how do we, you know, how, I suppose, how do we encourage the shift of society towards putting resources and investment into these studies? Because all the studies right now are in, into pills, right? Right. It's like, right. Right. Yeah. I think the only solution to this is to begin realizing that every human being brings something beautiful and great into the world. And it's not a question about whether we're good enough or we're not good enough. Every one of us brings a light into the world. And that's the deepest kind of a shift in beliefs that I've seen as I documented these things over the years is the healing of identity, the healing of deep conscious and unconscious beliefs about our value as human beings to realize we're not defective, that we are good enough, that we are all perfectly imperfect. And that's a great thing. And it's our imperfections that cause us to need others and that there's ways to help this work for us and not against us. Those kinds of shifts in our self-perception and and that then fuel the motivation to take charge of our health. And we want to make these other changes as these beliefs change. It's, it's just been a privilege to, to study these lives and to hear these inspiring stories and then to begin bringing these changes into my own life. It's, it's a very rewarding journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm touched by that. I mean, and, and, and it's a one by one by one. It's each individual. It's how do we, how do I find my own light and how yeah. do I have that shine in the world? And how do I see the light in each and every yeah. individual I encounter? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, even though there's common factors that are relevant to these stories, it's they're applied in a very individual way in each life. And so mm. one it's, you can't just say one size fits all when it comes to diet or to the kinds of beliefs that need to be healed. One needs to really get to know themselves and go on a journey and learn to listen to our body and listen to the unconscious beliefs that we live our life out of and begin to question well, maybe, maybe there's a different way to do this and a different way to think about this. Yeah. And that's, that, and that's absolutely the right answer. We, we start with that. Well, it's a, it's a complete shift in paradigm, isn't it? It's a, it's a yeah. shift in philosophy and paradigm. Right. And then what we're naturally motivated to then study will be different. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And we start to wake up to see that we and the world are not what we thought it is. It's, it's just such a, it's a deeply nourishing way to begin to live and a new world to wake up to. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> this, this has been such a rich conversation and, and so inspiring. And, 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 and for this message to become what be coming from someone so ensconced in the current, you know, <laughs> yeah. establishment, should we say, I think is, is very uh, encouraging. Well, yeah. thank you for having me. I really, I think it's important that we talk about these kinds of stories and solutions. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. the growing science around them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So for people who will put a link, we'll, look, we'll put a link to Cured Great. in the description. Um, is there anywhere else that the book, is there anywhere else you, you might send people? 
you, you've mentioned. Yeah, uh, they can you know, look at my website, uh, drjeffreyrediger.com. That's fine. There's information there. Um, we're working on other things as well. Um, you know, the big thing is there's, there's more and better research that's really starting to come out about this stuff. And so uh, we just need to help people realize that they matter and bring uh, that there's pathways to really improving health and well-being. So. Okay. Bravo. Thank you. Um, thanks once again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and enjoy the, the snow. I know it's falling behind you in Boston. Um, yeah, a lot of snow here today. <laughs> Will you be ice skating? There's some frozen lakes near you. Yeah, I'll probably try to get on the slopes and ski a little bit, probably. Oh, nice. Great. Good. Well, enjoy that. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.